Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. We're excited to invite Michelle Monkman on the show. She's a community nurse providing care in First Nations communities in Manitoba and is also an education liaison for the First Nations Inuit and Métis program for SE Health. We talk about what palliative care looks like, the unique and common challenges she faces in the community, and how to provide culturally appropriate care. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. So I'd love to just start with if you can tell us more about yourself, where you're from, the community that you're working in. Okay, I am from Norway House, our Kinosel CP. It's a semi-remote northern reserve in Manitoba. Uh, you do need to cross a ferry to get there, um, or you drive through the winter road in the winter to get there. Um, it's a bigger community. There's about 7,000 people there, and it does consist of a on-reserve and off-reserve population. Uh, I lived there till I was about 18, and then I moved to the city. I had to leave home to pursue my nursing career. That was that was tough. I was a single mom uh, and had to learn to navigate a city on my own. And uh, right out of school, I worked in uh, First Nation communities and with urban Indigenous populations in Winnipeg. Uh, and I came to SC Health probably about, I'm going on to four years in February, and now I work on different projects and initiatives uh, serving Indigenous populations across Canada. I'd love to hear more about what it's like to do community nursing in a First Nations community. I know you had several experiences um, in different settings, like what were those experiences like? Uh, I think that all the communities that I worked in were slightly different. I, it was all First Nations communities, um, you know, and I worked in Dakota nations and Ojibwe nations and Cree nations. So there's always different belief systems within the communities, um, depending on what is available within the community services will be different. There's not standardized care available, which makes makes it difficult. I've always felt that uh, services within the community, the health services specifically, are only as good as the healthcare professionals that just happen to be there at the time. So, you know, there's lots of beautiful things about working in the communities, but there's also a lot of difficulties working in the communities. You're, you're working with a huge lack of resources and support. So I know we know each other because we are connected through work in palliative care. And I'm curious as to, is there a origin story or how did you get interested in palliative care in the first place? Has it always been a passion of yours or did it just sort of fall into your lap? It sort of just fell into my lap. And I think, you know, I have been delivering palliative care without even realize that, realizing that I was doing it um, until I started to learn more about what that concept was. We know within the communities, within the First Nation communities I work in, there's high rates of um, chronic disease, so, you know, I was already applying that approach without being aware. Um, also, I do find that within a palliative care philosophy and a palliative approach to care, it's very in alignment with, um, you know, with a First Nations aspect or idea, 
ideas of what healthcare should be. It's very holistic. Um, yeah, so um, palliative care just ended up becoming something that I've, I am now passionate about because I see the gaps within the communities. Although I didn't see those gaps right away, um, I, I didn't quite know how to name that that's what was lacking when I was working within the community until I was able to step back and sort of look um, inside as an outsider once I was away. So I'm curious about what gaps you see in the communities that you're serving. Well, I think that there's the gaps that I see within the community for palliative care. Um, there's no prescribers. So there's a lot of uh, professional gaps that are there. There's no social workers necessarily, um, no occupational therapists, those sort of things. And then usually you're going to see gaps that are at a higher level. So you have to consider, um, uh, I guess, maybe the jurisdictional um, gaps that you're going to have. Palliative care is delivered provincially, um, gets the funding provincially, and home and community care programs don't receive funding specific to palliative care, although it is in their mandate that they provide palliative care. Um, it's pretty difficult to do that, especially when nears the end of life. Um, communities are funded to provide services Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 4.30, seven hours a day. That equals to about 21% of the time. And we know that palliative care needs, especially at the end of life, they're not limited to business hours. So um, unless the person who might be, you know, in that, those last weeks, days of their life, um, they're not gonna be able to die at home unless they have natural caregivers or a strong support system um, within the community to help them do that. You talked about palliative care and how for some people that's synonymous with end of life and death. But you also used the idea of a palliative approach to care, which is a different concept, something that could start earlier. So in First Nations communities, what does palliative care mean? My understanding has really um, developed uh, based on working more in the Western world. There is a misconception in the communities about what palliative care is. Um, pal they believe many times that it's just end of life care specifically. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work in trying to normalize palliative care as an early approach. And I tell nurses all the time, you're actually doing palliative care without realizing it the way that I didn't realize it. Um, and it's a holistic sort of uh, way to approach care is what I think we're looking at after the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional aspects of a person, um, not necessarily fixing things, but providing comfort care. Mm -hmm. I think you told me before You've worked in rural, remote, and even flying communities. And then, of course, you moved to the city. And is there differences in the way that palliative care is thought about or applied? I mean, obviously, the resources will be different. But even just the way that people, you know, what their needs are, is it is it different in the different sort of geographic regions? There must be. Are needs different? Um, I think that the ac like access to care is different, right? Um, needs are going to be greater where there's less access. Um, when I think about it, you know, people that do live in a very remote setting, at least they have 24-7 access to care um, because there's going to be a nursing station there typically if they live in a remote setting and it, uh, a nursing station is 24-7 and it is run 
through government, like Fini, but a health center, for example, you'll see more in the rural and remote, and that's the areas where it's only available seven hours a day, Monday to Friday, most often. Um, and sometimes I think that the needs could even be greater there because there's just, they have to drive if something happens, you know, there's no, none of that emergency care when needed. And you know that when there's an emergency, minutes count, you know? So I don't necessarily think that just because someone lives remotely that um, they have less access necessarily. It's, it's just, the availability of what's in each community, I think, needs to be considered. Michelle, you mentioned that your thinking of palliative care has changed since you first started working in the community. Can you tell us more about how it changed and how you used to view palliative care? You know, I think sometimes that when you live in the community, some of the things that happen, um, you know, we have higher rates for traumatic death, um, suicide, death occurs more often. Um, I think sometimes you could normalize that abnormal. Um, in my first job uh, as a nurse, I was working and somebody drowned. And my nurse manager, I just happened to tell my nurse manager that this happened. And he said, well, Michelle, you better fill out an unusual occurrence report. And I was like, what's so unusual about that? People drown all the time. Like, I just didn't see that, you know. Um, and then going back to my younger um, days, like living in Norway House, um, nobody died at home. What happened was people would get medevaced um, for an emergency and they would just be gone for days. And when they came back, they were dead um, because they would end up going out to the urban areas to, to die. So I didn't really you know, understand what was happening. And I just kind of thought that people went on planes and they died, you know, because um, that's what I saw growing up. So um, these were some of the experiences that I've had that, you know, really sort of deterred me from working with palliative or wanting to understand and, you know, be interested in palliative care. And, you know, sometimes I've talked to elders, for example, that talk about, um, you don't talk about death, you know, so if you talk about death, you manifest it. Um, thing, you know, so there's a lot of different cultural aspects, I think, that don't necessarily jive with um, palliative care, but I'm trying to change and shift some of that thinking because I know that once upon a time before colonialism that um, death was seen as a natural part of the life cycle, that our life was full circle. And um, what do we do before uh, palliative care was medicalized? What did we do before colonialism? So I'm trying to, you know, how do we revitalize that traditional viewpoint of death is sort of what I would love to do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to know, you know, you've seen through SE Health a lot of different communities across Canada and maybe even beyond and, uh, you know, north and south, east and west, big and small. Um, you know, there's, I've, I've seen some videos of creator's care where exactly as you said, is that this is a part of, of, of life and returning back to, um, you know, to the ancestors is, is a beautiful thing. And, I guess I'm just curious as, is there different, I'm sure there are different sort of, obviously every, the nations are independent, but are there different sort of attitudes to death and dying, you know, between the communities and are they very different or is this sort of, we've seen the shift and everyone is sort of death denying on, on some level and it's hard to push the needle back the other way. Uh, in some communities, um, I do know that, uh, you know, they do their own 
care of the body. So there seems to be some um, acceptance in that, that area. And I find that that's more typical in the really remote areas that don't have access close to um, a funeral home, for example. So, you know, there, you know, their differences are, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that um, it just depends on where you are. Yeah, some communities are really good about it. Other communities are just afraid. Um, you know, I and there's this whole traditional idea that, you know, we move on to the spirit world after we die, that we don't really die, that we move along into the spirit world. And, you know, there's some things that help us to do that and some things that will impede that process. An example of impeding the process would be something like suicide. Um, you can't transition to the spirit world and doing something like MAID would be considered suicide. So there's a reluctance to want to talk even about that sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to, you know, tell nurses and, and tell people that, yes, there is this reluctance, but we still need to talk about it because we need to give the full range of informed consent when we're um, delivering care, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah, it just depends. All communities have a different um, comfort level with it and practitioners as well. Um, but how do we create a standardized approach, you know, um, in palliative care and in care in the communities? How do we ensure that there is at least some kind of minimum, you know, that everybody has and every community has? That's sort of the area that I, I hope to make it change in. Mm -hmm. You're talking about making a change. And I think one of the great ways to do that is through education. And I know SE Health. Um, has created excellent, you know, education programs, and they have a particular interest in FNIM communities across Canada, and you've helped work on designing programs specific to palliative care, and including nursing care. So I'd love to hear more about that, the like SC Health's um, work, because a lot of our listeners may not know, and also just maybe some of the programs that you, you yourself have worked on and what you're proud of. Um, I developed a eight module course uh, for palliative care with um, in collaboration with the Canadian Indigenous Nurses Association. Um, I was a subject matter expert uh, for that project um, and it was supported by uh, the SC Health Foundation. So that was a really good project. I, the first module um, is more on cultural safety um, and how that applies to a palliative care context. So what are some of the considerations that we need to be aware of? One small example would be that, you know, Indigenous people are at risk for um, complicated bereavement because of things like cumulative death um, and um, traumatic death. Um, so that's something like a consideration there. The um, other considerations would be um, early onset of chronic disease or multiple com comorbidities, for example. So, you know, just tailoring it to specific to um, an Indigenous community context. There's, I found that there's a lot of information when it comes to um, cultural safety, maybe within a tertiary setting, a hospital setting, but what are some of those considerations for healthcare providers that are actually going into the community to um, provide services and care? So that's sort of what um, the whole goal of that, that, um, course was, and uh, that course was developed based upon a needs survey um, from nurses across Canada, who's very clearly told us what they needed with um, education. So that was, that was a big, um, a big project that I was pretty proud of. 
And has it been successful? Has it's been launched? Have people been taking it? Have you been getting good feedback on it so far? So far, yeah, it has been launched and it's been success, successful. It's, it's long, um, you know, and I think that it focuses more on a generalist uh, sort of competencies. And I encourage um, not just nurses to take that course, but also PSWs and health aides um, to take it just because the reality is, is in some communities, um, PSWs and health aides will be doing some of those advanced competencies because there is a nurse, nursing shortage. So um, I think that it's applicable to both. Some of our listeners may not know that SE Health not only provides home care, but also has a large group that focuses on education and a team dedicated for FNIM and culturally appropriate care and education. So can you tell us more about that? Well, we do have um, like a college that's based in Ontario um, and that's focused on PSW and vocational training. But within uh, the FNIM, First Nation Inuit Métis program, we have um, different vocational program that is a little bit different. Um, we have a healthcare course or PSW course that is tailored more for um, learners living in the community. So we want community we want to create um, capacity in communities, and we don't want people to have to leave their communities to be able to obtain education because that's that's hard. I had to do that, and I know what that's all about. So we provide opportunities for um, students to live and work within their communities, and then also um, come out to uh, the cities for some hands-on learning um, that are sort of sprinkled within um, within the program. So, and we also have Indigenous um, nurses that have lived and worked in communities, so we understand that context. Um, you know, we also have training for CHR community health representatives that is a, for, is a community specific role. Um, and unless you worked within the community, you might not understand that role. So um, I think that, you know, having nurses that lived and worked in communities makes a big difference. And it really creates buy-in with the students. and. We're able to provide an environment that's culturally safe. We also understand that, you know, we try to use a trauma-informed approach in our in, in our education. Um, we know that, you know, students may have difficulties. So we offer, um, you know, we have a counselor, student counselor that's um, always available. So we just kind of fit those in within our program to make sure um, we provide or we're trying to create the best opportunities for success. Mm -hmm. So being anticipatory to needs rather than reactionary, I think is important. Mm -hmm. And if I can go back to um, one of the things you talked about, you, the needs assessment that you did and you heard from primary care nurses in these communities of what they, what were the gaps, particularly around palliative care. Can you share what some of those were? I'd love to try to understand some of the stories or some of the frontline experiences of, of where, yeah, some of, of the gaps that they saw. Um, a lot of the things that we heard were resource specific gaps. Um, so that would be, you know, having the supplies, the basic supplies to do palliative care um, and maybe not even knowing what those basic supplies are because they, you know, never, you know, they've never provided care at the end of life necessarily. So, you know, I created a list um, in consultation with people that work in the regional health authority that do sort of those um, competencies all the time and trying to, this is what you need and this is what you need on hand in the community just in case this ever happens and 
having them on hand rather than waiting for something to happen is something that I've really tried to um, promote. Um, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of uncomfortableness as our people are uncomfortable, I suppose, talking about um, death and dying. And so they're reluctant to, um, you know, so that 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 was a big gap. So we I did a lot of teaching about advanced care planning and how to have difficult conversations within the course. Um, another issue that came up was, you know, how to do a sub Q line because they may not have done that. So we borrowed some, you know, uh, policies, procedures from a regional health authority and put that stuff in the course and then also put um, videos in the course. So they're able to do some of those um, skills. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about the people feeling comfortable in many ways, that's a nice segue to the, to the podcast, the waiting room revolution, because we recognized, we started with recognizing physicians, you know, being uncomfortable about talking about it. That's how they were ending up um, being referred to palliative care very late and also thinking of what, you know, what language would be different. And then we realized we could also make some of this language for patients and families. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about the podcast um, of what you've listened so far. Uh, I think that the podcast is really good. I didn't know it existed until I was asked to come and speak with you here. Um, I will actually think I'll be referring um, other people to your podcast. I like the banter that happens between you and the doctor and just hearing some of those stories uh, really resonated with me. And it makes me feel a little bit better that this is not just the reality in our communities. This is actually the reality across Canada. And uh, you know, so in some ways it's like, okay, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, you know, almost that there's some solidarity there that we all need to work together. And we all, we all have areas that we can sort of um, make change in, you know, and make things better. Um, I think sometimes the gaps are a little bit greater within the communities, but I think that if systems, health systems could work together, we could really make some things happen, you know? Yeah. So one of the most important keys in our podcast is invite yourself. The idea that the patient and family have to bring themselves forward and be an advocate in a way. Does that resonate in a First Nations context? No, I think that that could work. Um, and I think more than preparing just the individual person um, within the community setting, we need to be preparing the families. Um, because that is just the way that that communities function is that it's like more of a it's not it's it extends beyond that client and again with the communities that don't have that after hour support where it's home deaths will not be successful without that family support so there's a lot of um we need to really prepare families for that to work I think that Ideally, that could work, but you know, I, I go back to thinking about a working in a First Nation personal care home. Uh, I had um, a client who had a stroke, and we sent the person to the hospital, and she ended up coming back. Um, but when they sent her back, they didn't send her with any meds, and it was a weekend. There was no pharmacy in the community. Um, I tried to get the medications filled uh, at Shoppers Drug Mart, and uh, they don't have that medication on hand, and I couldn't get the hospital to work with me, um, 
you know, when I'm, I'm trying to deal with this, I'm the only nurse there looking after many other patients. And I watched her suffer. And, uh, you know, even within a personal care home, knowing that the de death could come at any time, um, it was even hard to be prepared in that setting, you know? Wow. Yeah. Were, were, were there, exp I mean, you said, you know, as a community, you know, health nurse, you have to be prepared for anything. Were there times where you did have the opportunity to journey with people who had a chronic disease that became, you know, a, an advanced one and then eventually die where um, you felt like you, you know, you could, they were prepared, the patient and the family, were there, you know, good examples and from yeah, your experiences? There, there have been, but those are few and far between. Um, you know, I could think of maybe two or three in the 18 years of nursing that I've been, I've been doing. So it doesn't happen very often. Um, but when it does happen that way, there's just this sense of pride, you know, among the, among the community and among the family and this, it's not relief, I don't want to say relief, but just the fact that they're able to make that happen for that person is, uh, is a real huge accomplishment, because it's not something that happens very often. Yeah, I'm wondering how you would describe success. I mean, can you share examples of a good story, what success looks like? And maybe also a story about a time when things didn't go as well as they could have. Well, the good story um, is that there's a prescriber that's um, that understands palliative care um, and medications that are, are needed towards the end of the life. They're anticipatory to what's going to happen. Um, family has had opportunity to work with the provincial palliative care teams in getting education, learning how to give medication, medication storage, that sort of stuff. Um, and they have, there's more than one family member. There's about usually five or six of them and they're able to uh, take shifts and take turns um, working with that person. Um, and then, the, yeah, they're just able to, to die at home. And, you know, just that it's not just joyful for the family, but joyful as a healthcare provider that you had some small part in that. I, I didn't even do the hard work, but, you know, helping with the coordination and helping with just encouraging um, it's a really, I think that when we allow people um, within the community to die within their homelands, that's a big gift to the person and the family, um, just because of that connection that we have to our homelands. So, I, I mean, I wish that everybody um, had that gift, um, but we know that it's, that's not the way that it is. Normally what happens is that people um, have the intention to die at home, have want to die at home. Um, they come home and care needs become too heavy. People have no one to call. Families have no one to call after hours because there's no 24 seven support. Um, symptom management becomes an issue. Um, maybe they weren't prepared for something like Shen Stokes breathing, um, something simple, you know, and they get really concerned. And so they end up calling the ambulance and they end up going, the person ends up going back to the hospital. Um, within the last two or three days and ends up dying there. So that's more of what I see as the more common um, response or, yeah, what most commonly happens within the communities. You know, some of our listeners are healthcare providers. What would you want them to know about how to provide culturally appropriate care, especially at the end of life? Are there things you've learned to do or to think about when caring for someone at this stage? 
You know, I think for myself, the biggest thing um, is that I would prefer that healthcare providers not make assumptions about anything. And if they have a question to ask, I would prefer that, you know, somebody asks me a question rather than just assuming something um, or, you know, wondering about something but being too afraid to ask. You can ask in a respectful way and you're usually going to get a respectful response. Um, and it's, comes across that you're interested um, in what one might be doing or maybe in my approach to, um, you know, spirituality and my approach to death and dying, my approach to what I believe in, you know, you're showing that you are curious and um, that could create solidarity. It's interesting. I thought of um, Harvey Chachanoff's dignity questionnaire, which would ask me like, please tell me something that I need to know as provider to uh, that would be important to your care, which could include a whole bunch of things, and it may have nothing to do with your culture, but it might. And I also think about what you just said, just ask. We've heard that from patients and families so often. If you don't know, just ask. We've heard that from LGBTQ plus uh, representatives to say, you know, don't make assumptions. Please just ask, especially caregiver advocates. They're like, um, we're there. Please ask us. Don't assume. And it's such a simple thing. And yet, it doesn't happen often. I, wa I, I wonder if it's because we're just so fast paced. And we've just, you know, we, we're, you know, clinicians are trained to diagnose and get out of there fast as opposed to like see the person, not the disease. And really just, you know, healing can be listening. Healing can be information. It doesn't have to always be, um, you know, medications, um, right. yeah. broken bones, you know, I, I wonder, I don't know how we get back to that, but we've lost some of that for sure. We've lost some of the humanity in healthcare and it, and I know it's more than just humanity, but it is that idea of, um, yeah, uh, these are pe we're people. We're people first. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, over the years that you've been exposed to palliative care, have you seen a difference in the nurses that you're meeting? I mean, has there been a cultural shift in understanding that palliative care is not just end of life, but that it could also be something that is beneficial early on? I think it's yeah. There definitely has. Um, you know. I think that um, there's been a lot of organizations that have done some great work, the work that you guys are doing, um, Lakehead is doing, the work that we're doing. I think that people are realizing, you know, the importance of um, early planning um, and talking about it. And, you know, when we get asked communities to get involved, like that needs survey, we get a lot of responses. So we know that people are wanting the information, people are wanting to build their skills to be able to offer to offer palliative care to the communities and do it well. Um, you know, with the with palliative care becoming an essential service in 2017, um, I think that has definitely um, created a huge shift. Um, you know, I, I just finished a toolkit for Manitoba on palliative care, and that alone um, speaks volumes. Um, the toolkit is just a collection of information um, sort of under one roof so people can access um, supports earlier, like educational supports earlier, um, clinical supports earlier, that sort of thing, rather than searching the internet, because there's so much great information out there. But it's like, taking the time to look for it, especially if you're in a community that doesn't have good internet. Um, we want this information that's available on a stick or a USB so people still um, have the opportunity to read those resources and use those resources in their practice. So there's definitely been a shift. It's kind of exciting, actually. Um, it's great to see um, the changes that are occurring. 
We talked a little bit about some of the keys and this idea of the family being critical to the whole story, which we call anticipating ripple effects. And you also mentioned navigating the system, which is tagurate. And I'm wondering if you feel like some of the things we talked about in our podcast would be applicable for people who might still have many years before death, but have a chronic disease and are maybe just adjusting to the fact that they have a progressive chronic disease that will ultimately decline. I think that it would definitely be appropriate and it might help to change some of those ideas around that thinking, right? Um, that, you know, whether we have a chronic disease or not, when we think about advanced care planning, um, I don't have a chronic disease, but I could walk out the door and get into a car accident and I would still want some stay in my care um, if I'm not able to verbalize for myself at that time. So that's sort of how I try to talk about it when I'm talking with um, clients in the community that, we don't know when our time is. It's important to have these things in place because we just, you know, chronic disease or not, you want to always have that um, stay in your own care and what's going to happen to you. So that, you know, when I approach from that way, um, I find that people are a lot more open to wanting to talk about it, um, wanting to talk about, oh yeah, death and dying. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. And um, I think that if we just shift our approach a little bit, uh, that perhaps more people will be interested in it. Um, so I do think that the podcast in terms of starting early conversations that, yeah, this is going to eventually kill me. Uh, it's probably, you know, it, it'll help to break barriers, I think. As you know, we have a project where we are working on trying to do some education around early palliative care and community capacity building uh, for First Nations communities. And one of the aha moments for me was trying to break down some of the barriers of palliative care and connect that to chronic disease, as well as this idea of how important it is for people to remain in their communities and to stay in their homes for as long as possible, which is not that different from people in other communities that aren't in a First Nations context. But like you said, we've already been doing a lot with advanced chronic disease. And so it's a form of palliative care um, when we when we do good chronic disease management and becoming more comfortable in using the skills and words that we talk about in our podcast. So some of those things that we designed um, could be applied to chronic disease management. But I also wonder if those things could be applied to mental health and addictions. Well, when I think about um, mental health and addictions, I especially addictions, I think about um, utilizing a harm reduction approach which is meeting people where they're at and running with it, which is the same sort of thing that, you know, palliative care does. We're meeting people where they're at and running with it and, you know, providing information. Can we, where are we going to follow you on this journey? Because it's your journey, right? And just supporting them wherever they are. So I think that there's lots of crossovers there um, and it could definitely be applied. I mean, you know, I think that mental health is, nowadays considered a chronic disease in a lot of a lot of times. So um, a palliative approach to care is very um, important, especially considering um, with mental health, there's not a lot, people don't necessarily want to take that biomedical approach and take medications. And so how do you serve them? Um, you know, that that's not necessarily using that biomedical approach, you're going to use that more holistic approach um, to care with them. That, that was one of my follow-up questions. So if palliative care in its, you know, if it, in, at its extreme is very biomedical, what would the opposite of that look like? What would the holistic or spiritual care look like 
um, for maybe some of the clients um, who are First Nations or Indigenous who, who, yeah, are looking for other more holistic spirituals? Like, what are the things that we, you know, one could do that aren't only about medications? Well, I think that um, for me, you know, looking at that, uh, when it's not biomedical and we're looking at it in a holistic way, uh, to me, it would be bringing back that traditional viewpoint of dying at home where people are looked after by their community and their families. And, it, you know, how they say it takes a whole community to raise a child. It takes a whole community to help someone pass into that afterlife in a good way. Um, so using, you know, whether that be, you know, people coming to sing, using these distraction techniques, massage, the non-pharmacological ways to healing, um, you know, cedar um, is a protection medicine, um, helping people cross over to the other side. Um, those are some of the things that I, I see as more of, um, you know, a holistic approach to death and dying. Um, and even in palliative care, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, medication. Let's um, go do some land-based stuff. We know that, um, for example, my mom had breast cancer and she used a combination of both. And I, I find that a lot of people will use tri both traditional and westernized approaches. So my mom drinks chaga tea, which is um, chaga is a medication that you get from the woods and it is anti-inflammatory. And we know that cancer is inflammation. And um, so that she drinks that and still drinks it to this day. Uh, she went into a healing sweat um, and a healing sweat is a little bit different than a traditional sweat in that it's a lot hotter. Um, and, you, you know, just kind of similar to a fever, we know that a fever is a body's natural response to killing um, pathogens in the body. So I think that when I think about a healing sweat, it almost mimics that body's, the body's own natural response to killing um, bad things that are in the body, like pathogens that are in the body. So, you know, just there's different ways of doing things. And I think that um, when people are able to practice a combination of both, it's you know, having the best of both worlds available to them. In your experience, have you noticed a sense of distrust in having to leave the community to go to a hospital or to a city acute setting? There's what, definitely a distrust. People don't want to go to the hospitals um, from communities. You know, they, um, that is the last thing that they want to do. And this is one of the issues why we know that um, Indigenous people get, uh, diagnosed with chronic disease later, with terminal illnesses later, because they put off going to the hospital because they're afraid to go to the hospital um, because of, you know, experiencing systemic racism, um, because of, you know, having to leave their community. Yeah, one of the biggest things we see is how people fear death and dying, which inspired our first key walk to roads. Is that fear similar in First Nations communities? I think that it's similar. Uh, and I think that that has been brought upon communities from colonialism. So we've lost that traditional viewpoint um, from the process of colonization and from the medicalization of palliative care and death and dying. So, you know, this is where I feel like the work needs to be done is bringing that viewpoint back. Um, like I've talked to, um, you know, my elders that talk about what it used to look like a long time ago and what they remember and how it was. And, you know, my mom talked about um, what it was like for her mom to um, die at home um, back then, although she did die at 42 years old from cervical cancer because there was no screening services where we were. So, you know, this is what I mean about people dying quite young. But yeah, I, 
I, I think that there is some a lot of that, you know, um, hesitancy, but and and scariness. But how, and so this is my conundrum. How do I, how do we bring back that traditional viewpoint that it's a part of the natural life cycle and it's not the end? Um, that that we you know we do exist beyond um, a physical world. Our, we have our spiritual selves and we we are we go there. So. Um, you know, I think when people are more traditional, there's a little bit more of a acceptance of it. Um, and yeah, it just depends on what your belief system is and what you've kind of grown up with and what you've been told. And yeah. I think that that's going to ch change everybody's response. Mm -hmm. Michelle, are there things that you hope that I was going to ask you about? I'm kind of looking at my questions here. I loved our discussion. Are there things that you hoped that I was going to ask you about that I didn't? I, I guess my biggest thing that I hope that, you know, people um, take away from this is the importance of systems working together. Um, you know, we're all people at the end of the day, and we need all of the systems to work together to sort of provide care, especially to our First Nations communities. And there's these invisible lines that um, need to be broken down. And, you know, palliative, like that whole saying that palliative care is everybody's business, we really need to be speaking together and working together, even within all of the organizations that are creating um, education, for example, we need to talk to each other to make sure we're taking that same approach. So we're not sending different messages. We don't want to confuse um, communities that are so eager to learn right now. Um, so yeah, I just, I wish I and hope that we can all work together and break down some of the silos that we see um, happening. Michelle, we often end our interviews with the question about what you've learned. And so from everything you've learned and seen and providing culturally safe and appropriate care in the community, what advice do you have for patients and families who are just starting their journey with a serious illness? I think that um, there's always room for hope, you know, um, I, I, not to lose hope, right? And to um, not be afraid, even though it is like probably the scariest time of their life and to try to prepare as much as you can. We do all of these things to prepare for birth. We have prenatal classes, we have all these things to read, but we need to be preparing um, for the inevitable that we will be passing on to the spirit world. So start to, you know, think about some of those things and prepare um, for some of those things and not to be afraid to talk about it. And for families, if your loved one wants to talk about it, to listen and to respond and to not shut them down because this might be their only opportunity to be able to voice their concerns. I just want to thank you so much for sharing uh, your stories and, and more about your culture with us. And thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Made Pole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.